0: My wife and I have a nearly uh, three year old son and every so often uh, we get one of those two, thirty, three three o'clock wake up calls from him. And uh, he wakes up screaming and, and crying. And uh, if you have small children, you know how jarring this is. Right, you're, you're in a deep sleep, you're, you're dreaming about whatever you dream about, hopefully good things, and all of a sudden, you're, you're just woken awake by a screaming child. And Cheryl's usually the first one out of the bed. I don't know if that's the difference between moms and dads or what, but I'm like, what is happening? You know, it's, It takes me a minute to get my orientation, but she's the first one up. She's out of the bed. She's running to his bedroom. And there's only one question on our minds in that moment, and that is why? Why is our child screaming? What's happening? We go into the room, and sometimes we've discovered that he's gotten sick in the middle of the night. Uh, Sometimes we've uh, discovered that he wet through his diaper a few times. He's kicked off the covers and was cold. But in that moment, the only real question that matters is why, what, what is happening, and why is this happening? With that in mind, open up your Bibles to Revelation 12 and 13. I absolutely love being a minister, I, I love being a pastor, but uh, far and away, the number one question that I help people process through spiritually, far and away the number one question is why. Why cancer? Why death? Why disease? Why divorce? Why did this terrible thing happen? Why, why is this other thing happening? That, that is far and away the number one question I get asked. And, and as you read the book of Revelation, you can imagine that as these end times progress, you can imagine that people are gonna be asking that question even more, right? As you read the story, I mean, some difficult and painful things are gonna take place in the last days. And so you can imagine that the people of the world that are living during that period of time are gonna be asking the question again and again, why? Now, I'm very, very excited to give this message today, to be totally honest with you, because um, this text is going to give us a theological construct for understanding the question why. And it's gonna give us encouragement, I hope for today, but it's also gonna give us a theological place that we can stand for how things are gonna progress into the future as the end times unfold. So I wanna start in Revelation 12, verses one through six. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, With the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head, she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon uh, with seven heads and seven horns and, and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled to the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Now, there are three characters in this story, are there not? That first of all, there's a dragon right, there's a dragon, and we're told later on in the story that the dragon is representative of Satan. There's a child that is born from a woman, and as the story unfolds, it becomes very, very clear that this child that has been given birth to is a a depiction of Jesus Christ. And then there is a woman who gives birth to the child, and and this is uh, a, a cause of a certain amount of debate. Of, of who this woman is. Some people would say, what's well, obvious, it's Mary. right?" There's a woman, she's getting ready to give birth to Jesus, and and the dragon's there ready to devour the child. It's obvious that, that, it, that it's Mary, and I'm not so sure how obvious it is. As I, as I studied and did my research, I actually think, and I've come to the conclusion, and again, this is open for debate, and you don't have to stand on this as true, but I believe the woman is Israel. And, and later on, Uh, the the people of God as seen in the church. And and when you read Matthew 1, this actually makes a, a lot more sense that Matthew goes out of his way to demonstrate to us that Jesus comes from Israel. So let's paint the scene here, all right? There's a woman, I believe it's Israel. It could also be Mary, to be totally honest with you, but I believe it's Israel. There's a woman getting ready to give birth to Jesus, and there is a dragon standing nearby ready to devour the child. This is why the great late professor at Lincoln Christian University one time uh, in a message I saw him give said that every nativity needs a red dragon. All right. So if if your nativity doesn't have a red dragon, you need to get one. All right. Because that's what was happening in that story. There's a woman, Israel getting ready to give birth to a son, Jesus, and the dragon stands over, ready to devour the child. Now here's what you need to understand. Satan's original plan, all right, Satan hates God. I think we're probably all on board with that. Satan hates God. They've been in a battle since the beginning. Satan's plan throughout all of history has always been to kill Jesus. Right? I think he had an idea that Jesus' plan was to redeem mankind. He knew that Jesus was God in the flesh, so he always wanted to kill Jesus. You see it as birth, right, where, where, where Herod orders the killing of all the children two years old and younger. You see it in his life. right. There's a temptation of Jesus in the Gospels where Satan says, throw yourself off this temple, see if God will save you. And I think Satan has in the back of his mind in that moment, well, if God doesn't save him, mission accomplished. So you see it there. You see at times Jesus so riling the religious leaders and teachers of the law that at times they they picked up stones and had him cornered. At one point they were going to throw him off a cliff. Right? They're ready to kill Jesus. You see it at his crucifixion. I always picture Satan being one of the most happiest guys at the time of the crucifixion because I think he's thinking, I finally got him. I think I finally killed God in the flesh. And I think he saw that as an opportunity. And what I love about the crucifixion story is that God used Satan's evil desire to ultimately accomplish something good, which is the redemption of mankind. Right? Satan thought he was ending Jesus and what Jesus was actually doing was saving you and me. And so if you don't believe God can take the evil things that have been done to you and turn them for good, the Bible would just teach otherwise. God is in the redemption plan, and he can use any variety of things for, for, for his good. So there's a plan in place from Satan to kill this child. It ends in failure at the resurrection. Let me show you what happens next, verse 7. All right, we'll have this one on the screen. And there was a war in heaven. All right, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, the dragon wasn't, and he lost his place in heaven. The Great Dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now some people think that this echoes back. We know at the very beginning of time there was a battle between God and satan i don 't believe this is what this is echoing back to. I believe this is talking about at the resurrection, Satan realized that his plan to kill Jesus had been thwarted, and so he went back up into heaven and attacked God one one more time to see if he could overthrow him from his throne and he fails again and he's cast out of heaven. And this raises a question, does it not? You're saying, wait a second, see, are you saying that up until the resurrection that Satan had some kind of place in heaven? Well, let's be clear. Satan has never been, he he was never saved, right? So his place in heaven is not one of salvation. His place in heaven, the text tells us in verse 10, for the accuser, of our brothers who accuses them before our God, day and night has been hurled down. Satan did have a role in heaven. One of his roles in heaven was to go up there and to accuse you before God, right? Before, right up until the resurrection, this is what he was able to do. He was able to go up and accuse, and we know this happened because of the story of Job. You may remember the story of Job that we, in the very beginning of that story, we see this interaction between God and Satan in heaven, and Satan says to God, Job only loves you because you've blessed him. If you stop blessing him, Job will stop loving you, right? And so he's up there accusing Job before God. And God, in that moment, allows Satan to take everything away from Job, and at the end of the day, Job passed the test, and, and he praises God no matter what. And so this has kind of been, historically, Satan's place in heaven, is he comes up and he accuses the saints before God. Now listen, I don't think God is affected by the accusations of the saints by Satan, right? So I think in terms of God, that is irrelevant. I don't think God is affected by that. Here's who I think is affected by it. You are, and I am. Doesn't that idea bother you? That somebody, that, that Satan was allowed to go into heaven and that he is allowed to accuse you and bring up your sins before God. I don't think it bothers God in terms of him being, oh, you're, you're right, Steve's a no good, you know, you know. I don't think that's how it worked at all, but but it bothers me that somebody is accusing me. So it's so important that you understand this, that at the time, ever since the resurrection until today, listen, you no longer have an accuser before God. Ever since the resurrection, listen, you now have an advocate before God. The, the, The accuser has been cast out out of the throne room of God. So you no longer have an accuser in heaven. What you have in heaven is an advocate. What you have in heaven is an advocate named Jesus Christ who stands before God day and night, and when you pray and when you worship and when you desire relationship with God, the advocate stands before God and says, they are forgiven, they are set free, they are redeemed by my blood. You now have an advocate before the Father. And what this means is that you can pray with freedom. You can worship unrestrained. You can have the relationship with God you were created to have because you now have one in Jesus Christ who stands before the Father and advocates for you. The accuser has been cast out. You no longer have one who brings up your sin. You no longer have one who stands before God and condemns you day and night. It is over. It is finished. At the resurrection, Satan was cast out of heaven. And now you and I, what we have, and this should be such good news to you. I'm sensing it's more mediocre news, but this is good news. You have an advocate named Jesus Christ who stands before the Father and advocates for you. So the question is, if the accuser has been cast out, what is he up to now? The text tells us, all right? Verses 13 and 17. What did I do with my wife? I do not know what's going on with my voice <laughs> ever since that surgery. I can't, can't keep it going, all right? I'm not preaching any less, just so you know, all right? Verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, and then verse 17. Then the dragon was so enraged at the woman that he went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. You want to know why this world can be so difficult? Let me give you the, the theological framework on which you can stand. You know why this world is so difficult? War has been waged on you. Understand that. Spiritually speaking, when Satan was cast out of heaven, he said, I can't defeat God, I can't defeat Jesus, all I can do now is wage war on the people of God, and and waging war is what he's done. So if you want to know why this world is so difficult, if you want to know why it is so painful, if you want to know why you sense that deep inside of you, it is that theological truth. Satan has declared war on you. He declared it on God, he lost. He declared it on Jesus, he lost. The only one left is you. And so I think that this often looks like accusation, all right, I think the war that he wages is often one of accusation, that he can't accuse you before God, but he can accuse you before you. And he often does that. Right? We're told in the Bible that he does that. that. He loves to tell the people of God that they are the unlovely, that how could they be forgiven? How could they possibly think that they have a right standing with God? Satan cannot accuse you before God, but Satan can accuse you before you. And he can dishearten you and he can discourage you and he can accuse you and he does it day and night. One of the great challenges for believers in Jesus Christ, one of the great challenges is to keep in your mind that you are loved, that you are forgiven, that God loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to die for you. You say, why is that so hard to remember? Because you have an accuser. And he loves to whisper in your ear, and he loves to whisper in my ear that sin you committed, that mistake that you made, that thing that you did that you hope nobody else knows about. How do you think God could love you after that? And he is a liar, and he is an accuser, and you should not listen to him. You have an accuser. And I think often the spiritual battle looks like accusation. I think often it looks like temptation and sin. That one of Satan's plans from the very beginning has been to tempt God's people away from his perfect plan for their life. So Adam and Eve in Genesis, they're tempted to eat the fruit. Adam is tempted to not believe that God's gonna deliver on the promise of a child. Moses is tempted to eventually murder. David is tempted to sexual sin. Peter is tempted to deny Jesus and it goes on and on and on and temptation is not sin. Sin becomes sin when we give in to the temptations that he places in front of us and these temptations, they are meant to accomplish three things. One is to distance you from your heavenly father, to distract you from the life that he has in store for you, but ultimately the, the plan he has is to destroy you spiritually. So he often uses temptation, he often uses sin to to distance, distract, and destroy. The, The third way I think that this looks like, I think it looks like suffering we know that God want, or we know that Satan, excuse me, wants to bring suffering upon the children of God so that they give up on their faith. And the true evil intent of the suffering is not the suffering itself. the true evil intent of the suffering is what He wants to accomplish with it. That in your suffering, what he hopes will happen is that you will hate God, you will despise God, and you will turn your back on God. This is why He brings suffering to the children of God. Now listen not every difficult or evil thing that comes upon you is a all right i want to use these words carefully okay not all of it is a direct satanic attack attack all right satan is not like god he is not omniscient Right? He, he, he's not omnipresent, right? Which means God, God, omnipresence means that God is everywhere. Satan is not like that. He can only be in one place at one time. So, not every difficult thing that happens to you and me, not every evil thing that happens to you and me is a direct satanic attack, but they all have their roots with Satan. And what I mean by that is sometimes bad things happen to us because others sin against us or sometimes we sin against ourselves or sin against others and bring hardship on ourselves. Other times this world is just a broken and fallen place. But understand, sometimes Satan does bring oppression. He does bring hardship. He does bring attack, physical attack, onto the people of God to discourage them and dissuade them from following God. Now, pretty intense, right? It's okay. We're, we're, we're getting to a kind of a cool part here. Um, I want to encourage you with a couple things. And, and I, I've said a couple of these a few times in this series, but I want to keep repeating them because I think they're so important. The first thing I want to dis- encourage you with I want to discourage you for a while. No, I want to encourage you with these truths um, Satan has already been defeated. Right? Remember what we said, the story of Revelation is how he comes to be destroyed. But we live in this weird time right now where he has been defeated, but he is not yet destroyed. And the story of Revelation is how he comes to be destroyed, but, but we're not there yet. He is defeated, but not destroyed. So he, here's my encouragement to you. How crazy would it be for you to let defeated Satan have any kind of victory in your life when his future is already proclaimed and set up? Do not give him the satisfaction of winning battles with you when he's already been defeated. He is just waiting for his final destruction. All right? The best comparison I could have to this is, is it would be it would be like uh, buying season tickets to the Cubs. You know they're gonna lose. Alright? So 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 why go to the games? All right? That's don't Get all weird on me, all right? It's just an illustration, but all right. He has already been defeated. Do not give him the satisfaction of winning these little battles. Here's a second word of encouragement God is greater than Satan it is so important to me that you understand that because there is this certain segment of Christianity that empowers Satan more than he should be, right? Satan, like I talked about, he is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere. He is not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. He's not all powerful like God. God is greater. And you even see this as we've talked about in the numbers described in Revelation. The number of God, 777. The number of Satan, 666. I am not a math major, but 777 is greater than 666, Right? So God is greater than Satan. Never never, ever forget that. And because God is greater, here's the truth of revelation. He gives you what it takes to overcome. Look at chapter 12, verse 11. This is talking about Christians in the end times. It says, They overcame them by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink From from death, and here's why this is so so significant. The Lamb overcame Satan already. He was tortured. He was killed. He was put in a tomb, and three days later, as we celebrated at Easter, He rose again. He overcame. And as Christians, we believe that the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, He has given us His spirit of overcoming. So what this means is if you are a Christian, you have received the Spirit of Christ, and you, just like Jesus, you are able to overcome. So when you are tempted, you are able to overcome. When you are accused, you are able to overcome. When you face hardship, you are able to overcome. The Bible says this, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You are an overcomer because of the Spirit of Christ living inside of you. And so you overcome by the blood of the Lamb. You also overcome by the word of their testimony. And testimony is so important, whether uh, it, it's a testimony of the Bible or a testimony of being in church or a testimony that comes out of your small group. Testimony is so important to hear, and, and here's why. Because we all have a, a, a weird desire that I think we're kind of born with to believe that what we're going through is unique, and it's unique. it is unique in its badness. So we all have a tendency to believe what I'm going through is unique and it's uniquely awful, right? And so what testimony does for you is testimony reminds you that others have gone through things very similar to what you've gone through and they have overcome by the blood of the Lamb. And if they can overcome, you can overcome too. So the Bible says no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And testimony reminds us of that, that what I'm going through is not necessarily unique and it's not necessarily uniquely awful, right? What I'm going through, other people have gone through it too and they have overcome and if they can overcome, I can too. So here's what I want to accomplish today before we move on to the next chapter. I know, it sounds like a long sermon, but it's not that long. Um, Mm -hmm. Wait, we're doing another chapter? Yeah, all right. Um, The theological framework for understanding where we are is that war has been waged on you. But you have what it takes to win the battle. Now, I also wanna encourage you in this. You can know exactly what Satan's gonna do. You can know what he's gonna do today, right? He uses accusation, he uses temptation, he uses suffering. You can know what is in his playbook. He doesn't have a very interesting playbook. He tends to use the same methods in the same ways. But here's, here's where the text is going to go on and why the, the text went out of its way to kind of build this base for us to stand on, is that he wants us to see exactly what Satan's going to do in the end times, right? And so just like we've spent a lot of time, and we're going to get back to this next week, studying God's playbook, in Revelation 13, we are actually given Satan's Playbook for how he's going to discourage and dissuade and distract and lead away the people of God from God, and we can see exactly how he's going to do it. And this is where you start to get into some of the Revelation stuff that's a little bit uh, hotly contested. But but here's what you see in Revelation 13: is that on the earth there are going to be three leaders, and these three leaders, their mission is to discourage, distract and dissuade people from following God. This is always, that's Satan's playbook. He's trying to discourage, distract, dissuade, get people to turn away from God. So there's three leaders in the end times that are gonna lead this movement to discourage, distract, and dissuade the people of God. There is a dragon, there is a beast of the sea, and there is a beast of the earth, all right? So dragon, beast of the sea, beast of the earth. And and, in kind of theological circles, These are sometimes called the unholy trinity of the end times, all right? The unholy trinity. Trinity just means three. The unholy trinity of the end times, the dragon, beast of the sea, and beast of the earth. Now, I want to pause here just for a moment, all right? Because I want to talk to you, before we talk about the unholy trinity, I want to talk to you a little bit about how the holy trinity works, because right, I think if we understand how the Holy Trinity works we're going to be able to understand the, the unholy Trinity and the, the Trinity works in this way that we believe that God is one but that God uh, while God is one he he works in three different ways the Trinity teaches that God is one but there are three unique parts to him and and they're they're all unified and part of the same Trinity and each member of the Trinity. Uh, works in in one area to accomplish one goal. They all fight for the same thing. They're totally unified, but, but it is the Trinity. So the first member of the Trinity is God the Father. Right? God the Father is on the throne. He is in charge of all things. He is in control of the universe. He created the heavens and the earth. You have God the Son, who is Jesus Christ, he came to earth, he lived on earth, Uh, he instituted this worldwide movement called the church, and and so that the church could could flourish and, and grow, and that was one of, Jesus is now the head of the church, and then you've got God the Spirit, right? God the Spirit, or the Holy Spirit, works on a very local level, he works in the lives of believers to encourage them to follow after God. So God the Father, above all things, God the Son, God coming to earth, right? Starting the movement called the church, rescuing and saving mankind through the cross, and then God, the Holy Spirit, at a very local level in the lives of, of all of the believers. Now, let me show you the unholy trinity in the text, Right, right? You've got the dragon, who we've already established is Satan, and Satan, in, in this unholy way, is the head of the whole kind of evil empire of the end times, all right? Every evil thing that happens in the world has its roots with the dragon, all right? Um, And that's that's just the way it is. Now you've got um, the the beast of the sea. Take a look at verse 5 of chapter 13. We'll put it up on the screen for you. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. He was given authority over every tribe, language, and nation. So as you read the text, it becomes clear that the beast of the sea is somebody who has great authority, right? That that just like Jesus was the institutor of the church and he is the leader of the church, this entity is the part of the Holy Trinity that leads the earthly worldwide movement to discourage dissuade, and distract the people of God. Now, the question is, is what exactly is this beast of the sea go- going to be like? We don't know. I- I- I've heard a lot of different theories about it. I've heard that it's going to be like Microsoft or Apple, right? Um, I've heard that it's going to be some sort of healthcare system thing, right? Um, what I believe, just to kind of, for you know, transparency's sake, I believe it's a government That in some ways that that this government is going to form, and that part of this government's mission and purpose is going to be to blaspheme the name of God, to slander the name of God, to persecute those who follow after God, to discourage, dissuade, and distract the people of God. So, could it be Microsoft? I don't know about that. I enjoy Apple more, but um, (laughs) you know. Could it be Apple? Could it be Microsoft? Could it be some sort of healthcare thing? Yeah, it could be any number of those things. I believe based on the number of times in that text that the word authority is used, I believe it's going to be a government. I really, I really do. Um, one that's probably not even in power yet, that, is gonna, that this government that is formed is going to blaspheme the name of God, slander the name of God, and persecute Christians. And this is already, on a micro level, not at this level, at a micro level, this is already happening in the world. God's name is slandered all the time. God's name is blasphemed all the time. God's people in other parts of the world, God's people are being persecuted even today. All right? So that's the beast of the sea. you got the dragon, the beast of the sea. Now let's look at the beast of the earth in verse 14. Because of the signs he was, uh, because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Uh, He was given power to breathe uh, to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Uh, He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and powerful, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead uh, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast and the number of his name. So... The beast of the earth is the beast at a local level, right? You've got the dragon that oversees the whole thing. You've got the the beast of of the earth uh, or the beast of the sea that is leading kind of the worldwide movement in charge of the government, whatever. But then at a local level, just like we need the Holy Spirit, at a local level, you need someone instituting the desires of the beast, and so this beast of the earth is at a local level. They're, they're, they're here on the earth, and I believe the beast of the sea is here on the earth too at, at the time of, uh, that this is going to happen. But, but they're enforcing the will of the beast. These are local government officials. These could be business leaders. These could. I've even read some theories that these could be pastors that have lost their way. And they're they teaching people, this is, what, this is what this government wants us to do. This is what the beast wants us to do. Do it. Comply, give in. Um, And so that's the unholy trinity. And this is how the people of God in the last days are going to be discouraged, dissuaded, and distracted. Right, And it would be easy to get distracted by these texts And to wonder, wait, 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 wait. You know, what about the mark of the beast for buying and selling and trading? And what what do you mean about the government thing? It would be easy to become distracted by that. But here's what I really want you to understand. There is a spiritual battle happening today. And there is a spiritual battle that will continue on until the last days. And God is trying to draw you to himself. God is. Satan is trying to draw you away from him to discourage you, distract you, and dissuade you. Don't I know, if you're new to church, I'm sorry you were here today, All right, All right, let me apologize for that first because I know this stuff sounds weird. You're like, this is why I don't go to church, All right, You come in and it's like, oh, the mark of the beast and all that. I, I, all right, so I, I get that. But if you're a Christian, let's not be deceived about this, right? Because, because the worst thing to, to, that, that could be said is, this is stupid. This is silly. This, this, this would never happen, There is a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6 outlines this very, very specifically. There is a spiritual battle happening for the hearts and souls of men and women. And it is happening today. Do I think the beast is is already in place? I do not. Just just to be honest, I don't. And I don't even think it's really that relevant. This is trying to show us an an extension of what is already happening today is that there is a, a battle that is happening for the hearts and souls of men. And you may be tempted to be like, well, what do we do? I mean, do we start to try to predict and start calling all kinds of people the beast? Please don't do that, right? Because it makes what could already be perceived as a little bit silly by non-Christians, even more silly when you start naming names because you couldn't possibly have that information, right? Nobody has that information. So we're not gonna start naming names or working on prediction and all that. Here's what we're gonna do. Verse 10 says this. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. As the end times unfold, what are you to do as a Christian? Here's what you are to do as a Christian endure and stay faithful. I continue to be blown away by Christians that are surprised at how downhill our culture is going. Do not be surprised by how downhill our culture is going. We have only seen the beginning. The text does not say, what are you to do as a Christian? You are to be surprised. The the text does not say, what are you to do as a Christian? You are to uh, pick it, right? The the text does not say, uh, what what are you to do? You are to get really angry at the culture, because I see that reaction a lot too. I was like, man, this culture is, you know, it's just going downhill and they, they get so angry about it. No. The text says, What do you do as a Christian? Endure and stay faithful. Listen, you have the blood of the Lamb, you have the testimony of the saints, you have everything you need to be an overcomer. So here's what you are to do be an overcomer. Be an overcomer. Not gonna get angry, we're not gonna be surprised. Surprised and angry are not the right reactions. Here's the right reaction endure, stay faithful. Say, I don't know know if I can. You can. You have the blood of the lamb coursing through your veins. You have the word of the testimony of Christians all over this land and all throughout human history that have overcome by the blood of the lamb. You are stronger than you think you are. You have more inside of you than you realize you do. Of course you can stay faithful. So we're not going to be surprised. We're not going to be angry. We are going to endure. We are, go- we are going to patiently endure and we are going to stay faithful. Here's the other thing, verse 18. The other encouragement to the saints. This also calls for wisdom. So, patient endurance, faithfulness, and wisdom. As the end times unfold, can I just say something to you? Because right? I, I, I established at the very first week that I believe we're already at, in the beginnings of this and have been since the resurrection of Jesus. So they believe they were in the end times, I believe we're in, everybody throughout human history should believe we're in the end times. Um, as the end times unfold, here's, here's my challenge to you. Do not believe everything this culture tells you. Do not believe everything you are taught by well-meaning pastors who write, write books and get very successful. Do not believe everything you read in the newspaper. You demonstrate wisdom. What one, of the, one of the greatest ways I can encourage you as the end times approaches, we have this amazing gift. We are one of the first cultures in human history that we all get to carry around or even have on your phone at this point the written down word of God. You be in God's word. You know God's word. You listen to the spirit. You be in church. You surround yourself with godly friends. You demonstrate wisdom because people will lie to you They will say things are right that are wrong. They will say things are okay with God that are not okay with God. They will blaspheme his name. They will slander his name. They will make fun of you and persecute you for listening to it at all. And you and I are going to need wisdom. This is not a guilt trip at all, but you have been given an incredible gift called God's word. You need to be in this book. You need to know this book so that you are not deceived. Because people, like I said a couple weeks ago, people will say stuff that almost makes sense but are untrue. Like God is most interested in your happiness. You know that's not true, right? No, I'm pretty sure it's in the Bible. It's not. It's not. And so you and I, things sound right. Things look right. Things people say almost appear to be true. And you and I, we need wisdom as the end times approach. We need wisdom to know what is true, to know what is right, to know the heart of God, to know how we should respond. And, and wisdom comes from being in God's word. Wisdom comes, listen, this is not just something that, that I, I don't want you to think I'm saying this just become a pastor, but you need to be in church as often as you can. Please be in church to hear the teaching of God's word. Please be in his word. Please be in a small group of people because this is where the Bible teaches we get wisdom. So what do we do? We do not predict, we do not get angry, we do not act surprised. We patiently endure, we stay faithful and we walk in wisdom. Will you stand with me?